Okay, so this is the last kind of section of the Spiritual Warfare series I'm doing. This will be two weeks worth of content. And this last section is called Gods and Idols. And this is really about kind of the more the Old Testament piece. So of course, we'll jump back and forth between the New and Old Testament like we have the whole time. But this is primarily an Old Testament encapsulation of what the 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 Bible has to tell us, right? This is about what the Old Testament adds, what it tells us about this concept of spiritual warfare. So the questions that are kind of leading us are this, what are gods, right? What are these beings that are referred to as gods? We'll talk about that. What are idols? What are these things that are created that uh, represent gods? And what does the Old Testament have to tell us about spiritual warfare? So we're actually going to deal with those questions in reverse order of how I I, I wrote them. Um, we're actually going to talk about idols this week first because I think it gives us a good background to deal with some of you know the uh, to deal with some of the qualms people have with talking about these things. And then next week we'll talk about the gods. Okay, so here we go. Exodus twenty. If you open your Bible to Exodus 20, it's a good place to start. And interestingly enough, if we know uh, Exodus 20, this is the Ten Commandments. Interestingly enough, this mentions both gods and idols in this passage. Of course, if you know, the Ten Commandments are kind of the guiding principles of the entire Old Testament law. They're these commandments that stand at the front of, of the law of God. And of course, at Exodus 20, the people have have left Egypt, they're out of Egypt, they have been redeemed, they have been brought through the sea, and they're at Mount Sinai, and of course, these words are, are being given, right, and then written on the tablets. And here in Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments, and the first one starts like this, you shall have no other gods before me. Then the second, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep me my commandments. So these first two, uh, these first two commandments deal with gods and idols. Now, I'm not saying they're necessarily written in priority order, the Ten Commandments, like the first one's the most important, and then the second one's next to most important, so on, so on. Um, I'm not saying that's the case. It may be the case, it may not be. But for whatever reason, if that is the case, the Lord put these up front, which is having no other gods and not making idols. Okay, And we have to ask ourselves, what is that about? <clears throat> See, one of the problems we have, of course, is that we live in naturalistic, uh, a naturalistic worldview, or at least in Western cultures here in America. We have a naturalistic worldview. And I talked about this a little bit at the start of the series, but... That naturalistic worldview makes this section particularly, particularly, I think, hard for Christians uh, because they don't want to accept what the Bible has to say on these things. 
because they they are inundated with their western naturalistic worldview that that there is no supernatural and that all that is around us is just the material there is no supernatural reality whatsoever <clears throat> the bible does not say that the bible actually says the exact opposite which has been true for all peoples everywhere uh pre-enlightenment and still is true for all peoples everywhere uh, except for western countries today in the modern day uh, post-enlightenment western people are the only people on the face of the planet that have ever been uh naturalists until the enlightenment prior to that everyone believed in gods and spirits and even today everyone believes in that except western cultures so uh, we are in the far minority to not believe in the supernatural than those who did believe in the supernatural and of course we're we're snobbish about it and we believe we're better and know better than everyone else so exodus 20 what are these idols we're going to start there what are these idols? He says, don't make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Okay, so we can talk about some of the terms that are used to talk about idols. There's actually a lot. There's a lot of different words that are used in the Bible um, that is translated into English as idols, different kinds of idols or different types. One of them is found in Exodus 34. Um, in verb form, which is what interesting. One of the words is pestle. Pestle is a word that is used for um, uh, an idol. Pestle. That's a Hebrew word. And in Exodus 34, what's interesting is that you find a verb form of the word pestle, pasal, <clears throat> here in Exodus 34. And it's the Lord speaking to Moses about making the stone tablets. And it says, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones. Well, the verb for this uh, pestle, this idle word, is actually cut out. Cut out, here when God says to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets. Cut out is the verb form of this word, pestle, that is used for an idol. And what that tells us is that an idol, according to the word pestle, is a cut out thing. It's a it's a hewn thing, right? It's it's something that's shaped and formed by people. It's something that is hewn and cut from and shaped. And that's what pestle implies, right? It implies that the idols are a, a cutout thing. And so we see that in Exodus 34 that this verb actually helps us understand what they're what they're talking about when they use pestle, because it's a cutout thing. Another very common word is selim. Selim. Selim is a very common word um, that means an image or likeness. And what it, it what it actually helps us see is in Daniel 3. If you know Daniel, Daniel 3, it says Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. Well, always the assumption has been, uh, you may not know this reading, but if you've ever seen pictures, if you've ever seen, you know, maybe a children's story of the, the golden image, uh, it's always of Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason is, an image, the word selim, means an image or a likeness. It means it looks like something. It looks like something. Uh, 
right? So when it says he made an image, a selim, it looks like something. Most interpretations are that it looked like him. It was an image of himself, right? So a big, massive statue that he made that was an image of himself for people to worship. It was an idol of Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? Okay, another word that is used often for um, <clears throat> that is used often for an idol is the word hevel. Hevel. This shows up in Jeremiah ten. Jeremiah ten, verse eight. Right, but they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Their idol is wood, hevel. Hevel is interesting because hevel means emptiness or vapor. It's it's that it's nothing. It's it's a mist. It just there's no nothing of substance to it. There's nothing of value, nothing of weight. It's just emptiness. It's vapor. It's nothing. Okay? Those are Old Testament terms. The two Greek terms that are used in the New Testament are two, and they're interesting because they're both words that you might recognize in English. They come across to English pretty well. One is icon. Really, icon, but the word you recognize is icon. Icon is kind of the same as selim. It's an image, a a likeness. Icon. Right, icon uh, in English pretty much means the exact same thing. So if you're on a computer somewhere and you click a computer icon, the icon is meant to be a representation of the program you're opening or the file you're opening or whatever, right? It's just a little symbol. It's a little symbol that represents that thing. It's a likeness, an image of it. And the second word is, of course, where we are even starting this discussion. It's idolon. Idolon, right? An idol. <laughs> Eidolon. It's an idol in English. It's where we get the English word idol. An eidolon is a form, a copy, right? It's, it's a material symbol. Interestingly, in the Septuagint, it's sometimes translated as gods, right? As God or gods. So it's connected, right? It's connected. <clears throat> now, all these words give us different ideas are different kind of pictures of what an idol is. Like I told you, there's even more than this. This is just a sampling. But we have to look at some passages that talk about idols and what they are to understand um, what the Bible has to say about them. Now, I would say this. This is one of the reason, uh, one of the reasons uh, I think people are so reticent on this concept of the gods, which is what we're going to talk about next week, Um, is because of the two passages we're about to read. So I'm going to read them to you, and I want you to think about what it sounds like uh, the passages are saying about idols. Because it seems pretty clear from these two passages. Go to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9. It says this. Those who fashion a graven image, that's the idol, are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? 
Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. And then another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. And then he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts the roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for the Lord, this is, it's he, but it's the Lord, has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? What's the point of this passage? The point is, look how foolish these idol worshippers are. Look how foolish they are. They make something out of wood, and I love the imagery, right? They're making it. And they're stronger than the wood, right? They're shaping it and forming it and crafting it and cutting it. And so they make it for a little while. And then them, as a man, gets tired and weak. And their strength fails. They're they're thirsty and they're hungry because they've been hard at work. And then they pray to the thing that they made. Them, in all their strength and glory, still got tired and weak and hungry. And the thing that they work on that's even more meaningless than they are, they worship and say, deliver me, for you are my God. He takes a tree and he cuts it in half and he uses half of it to cook some food and make a fire. And then the other half he pretends is his God. How weak, how impotent, how meaningless is this piece of wood? that just as easily could have been the piece of wood that ended up making the fire, ended up baking, you know, that he used to warm himself, that he could bake bread over. It's pointless. It's meaningless. Let's read a second. It's similar in tone. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Verse 1. <clears throat> Bell has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. By the way, those are the gods of Babylon, two of the gods of Babylon. 
Their images are consigned to the beast. This is talking about their idols, right? Their, their material representation. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. This is the Lord speaking. And all the remnant of the house of Israel, you have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you. And I will bear you and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me? And make me equal and compare me that we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down and they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. What's the point of that passage? I love Love that passage because what's he saying? These gods of Babylon, they're carried on donkeys. And these gods, men pick them up and they bear them on their shoulders and they have to carry them around and they set them in their place and they can't move. And God says, You know what, Israel? I have borne you. These men, with their gods, they have to carry them around from place to place. And don't you get it, Israel? I carried you. Not like these other gods that are carried around and set in their place. I am the one who has borne you on my shoulders. And I will, till your graying years. They are impotent. These other gods are meaningless and pointless. And I am powerful and strong and your defender and your deliverer. Okay. So when you read these passages, what it sounds like idols are is that they're nothing. They're empty. They're meaningless. Okay, and these passages show up, that was just a few, but there are a lot of these passages that show up in Isaiah from, from Isaiah 40 to 46 that have been determinative for how most Christians think about these concepts of idols and gods. But this is the only data point they take into account. Right? They just read those specific 
passages and they don't read anything else. And they think, okay, I've got it figured out. Idols and gods don't exist. They're meaningless. God even said in the passage, I am the Lord, I am God, and there is no other. There is no other. So that must mean that no other gods exist. I don't think that's what God is trying to say. And if you take into account the whole of Scripture... I don't think that's what is is being implied. And like I said, we'll talk more about that next week. But let me just say up front, what God is saying is that he's incomparable. That there is no being like him. These other gods, which I will tell you, uh, I do think exist. These other high-ranking spiritual beings, they're incomparable to God. None of them is a creator God. They are smaller and and impotent compared to him. They're nothing compared to him. Right? He is the creator God over all things. And these beings, these other gods, they have been created by him. He is the only sole eternal being who has existed. And everything else that exists came from his hand. Right? Now, the reason we use, excuse me, the reason I use the word gods is because that's what the Bible uses. And we'll talk about that. Like I said, listen to to next week. um, And you'll understand that the Bible uses that term unapologetically. And so I have no problem using the term. But I know it, it raises hackles for some people. Uh, because they don't like using that term, but it's the term the Bible uses, so I'm not afraid to use it. Um, So here, but, but what we're talking about right now is God and idols. Okay, so how does he feel about them, right? How does he feel about them? It seems like they're meaningless. Like I said, this is kind of the only data point people take into account is here, but idols are representations. They're representations, Like I told you, when we looked through the words, they're talking about images and likeness and form and material. And they look like something. They're these things that are created. And at one level, idols are meaningless. They're, They're just these physical representations, physical representations of the God that stands behind it. Right? They're just meant to be kind of a material representation, a physical representation of an immaterial being. And so at the most basic level, that's what the idol is supposed to be. But these idols are impotent and people bow down and worship them. And so what ends up happening is most people apply what is being said about idols to God, uh, to, excuse me, to gods. And I think, I think that, um, Sometimes the Bible uses those terms distinctively. It uses them as separate terms. And sometimes it it conflates them, right? Sometimes it conflates the ideas of gods and idols. And sometimes it keeps them separate. But the real question we end up having to ask is, are there actually things that stand behind those representations? Things that stand behind those idols, those images? And like I said, that'll be the question we talk about next week. But how does God feel about idols? And why does he feel that way? Well, how does God feel about idols? Go back to Exodus 20, like we were talking about. Okay, These passages make it seem like they're meaningless, they're pointless. And if they're meaningless and pointless, what does it matter? What does it matter? 
But the Lord is clear in Exodus 20. Don't make any idols or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. For I am the Lord. Excuse me. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I show loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay? Well, I'll give you my uh, reasoning. Now, I'm going to tell you up front that this is kind of speculative. I think this is what the Bible's trying to say. I think this is maybe part of the reason why God doesn't like idols. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm willing to entertain the thought that I'm wrong. But I'll tell you why I think this. And it's because of the terminology. Go to Genesis 1. Why does God hate idols so much? Well, in one way, I think part of the reason is because he, God, the Lord, already has an idol. Go to Genesis 1. If you read Genesis 1, right, this is the creation account. God's creating all these things, and at the pinnacle of all of it, he creates man. Right? He creates man. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. In our image. What word is used for image here in Genesis 1.26? Let us make man in our image. The word is selim. It's that word that I told you is used for idol, selim. An image or a likeness. It's the same word that's used in Daniel 3 for the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It's an image. It represents. It stands for. It looks like. Selim is the exact word that is used for making man in God's image. I think the reason God hates idols so much is because he actually already has idols. And idols are humanity. Men are idols. Mankind are idols. I didn't mean that. As a gendered term when I said men, by the way. I mean mankind are idols of the Lord. How so? Because we are supposed to be the representations of him. Like I told you, ultimately the language of an idol is the language of representing materially something that is immaterial. An immaterial being represented by a material reality. That is humanity. Humanity are material representations of the immaterial being, God. The immaterial God that stands behind us. So when we talk about the language of us bearing the image of God, we have to understand that we are his images. Which is why the tragedy of Genesis 3, of sin, is so huge. Because we were meant to be in creation to show what God is like. We were meant to be the material representation of what God was like. 
and instead we look so very far from God as humanity. We do things that crush God's heart. We do things that are evil. According to Genesis, later on, not very much later on, but later on in Genesis, right? Every thought of his heart is evil continually. And so God enacts the flood. That's what he says about humanity. These beings that were meant to be his image, his selim, the representation physically of the God who is immaterial, the spirit being. We, we look nothing like him in so many ways. And yet there is this image in us that cannot be broken, in which we are like him, in which this, the thing that he made us to be cannot ever fully be taken away. Because we still have the opportunity uh, to be like him. And we still have uh, parts of us, there's, there's facets of us that still show who God is. Even when we do heinous, evil things, there's still parts of us that, that are, just by nature of being human, still reflect the reality of who God is. The good reality of who he is. But it's interesting when we get to this language of the New Testament, the language of the New Testament where we, we are transformed, we are changed. What are we changed into? Well, we're changed back towards that image. Why are we getting rid of all the evil things and putting on all these good things? It's because we're supposed to image God well again. We're supposed to actually look like him. We're supposed to actually make him manifest, right? We're supposed to in our own lives, uh, be the visible representation of God and what he's like to others. And that's that transformation piece, the sanctification thing that comes up in the New Testament. That's what it's related to. We start to look and act and think and love like God. Okay? And I would say, obviously, this that part was speculative about us being the the idols of God, maybe it's a little more speculative, but what's unequivocally true in the New Testament is that even if humanity generally wasn't meant to be that way, I think it was, but even if it wasn't, who clearly is the idol of God, scripturally, is Jesus. Jesus takes on flesh, he takes on material form to be the material representation of the invisible God, right? The material, physical manifestation of what the invisible, immaterial, spiritual God is. And we know that because it says it explicitly. Where does it say it explicitly? Well, in this famous verse, Colossians 1. Colossians 1.15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the icon of the invisible God. When we read that in our English, we we imply, we import all the meaning of what we think of an image. Oh, he's just a good picture. He's a good picture of what God is like. That's what image means in English. He's a good picture of it. No. This is saying he is the idol of the invisible God. He is the image. He is the icon. 
Why? Because he makes the invisible God physically present. He makes the invisible God materially present. He is literally, Jesus literally is the material representation of the immaterial, the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible in physical form. So that is undeniably true in the New Testament. And this famous verse that we read and we import English categories into is actually saying something much bigger, much more important than we even realize, which is that he is this, this idol of God. He is the exact representation of what God is like in physical form. So when we look at Jesus, if we want to know what God is like, if we want to know what this invisible God that we serve is like, we look to Jesus because he's the material representation of the invisible God we serve. Right? And that's clear. That's clear to us. Jesus is the image of God. He is the icon of God. He shows us what God is like. And the last question. Now I'm going to answer it preemptively. Here's my last question for this section. I'm going to answer it preemptively. Because I told you we're going to look at the data next week on gods. We're going to look at the data points, what, what the Bible has to say about them, whether they have real power, whether they really exist. We're going to look at that next week. But I think there are passages I can point to right now that give us the conclusion ahead of time. Okay. And this last question I had was, are there beings, are there beings that stand behind some of the representations, some of the idols, some of the images, or are they all just empty and meaningless? Like Isaiah says, like Isaiah 44, Isaiah 46, are they all just nothing? They're all just blocks of wood and there's nothing there. Or are there actually some of them, are there beings that stand behind some of those representations, some of those idols, some of those images? I think the Bible answers actually really clearly. We just don't like the answer for most of us. 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. I think Paul answers it pretty unambiguously. If you read 1 Corinthians 8, he's talking about things sacrificed to idols. Things that are sacrificed to idols. And so he says this, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. Okay? That sounds like Isaiah. He's starting out at the point of Isaiah. There is no such thing as an idol, right? Meaning it's nothing. It's worthless. And there's no other gods. There's no God but one. Just just the God of Israel, right? He's the only God. Okay, but it doesn't end there. If you just read that verse, it's like, okay, Isaiah's right. That's the only only thing we need to think about. But he goes on, verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, and then he makes this concession, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us as Christians there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist 
through him. Okay? He answers it. He's, his point is to say exactly what I, I was saying is what I believe. It's not that the, these things don't exist, that there is no idols, and that there isn't spiritual beings that stand before him. Or excuse me, that stand behind them. It's that compared to God, there has nothing. They're worthless. They're meaningless. And for us who are Christians, we have one God. We don't worship these other gods. We don't think about them. We don't, we're not engaged with them. We have one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. But he concedes that there are many gods and many lords. For the Christian, there's but one God and one Lord. Right? That's his point. And this so-called gods, meaning they're, they're called gods, but what, in what way could they be comparable to the God of Israel? No way. There's no way. Go on in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 10. If you go to chapter 10, verses 19. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, now they're talking about sacrificing to idols, right? And he, that means sacrificing to idols, which are these, you know, the, the actual material representation. But behind them stands something, right? There's, there's something that stands behind them. And, and typically what even a Gentile would say is, oh, it's my God. It's my God is the, the reality that stands behind him. What does Paul say about those realities? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He identifies these gods that they sacrifice to with demons. The gods that they sacrifice to, he identifies with demons. That does not mean there's nothing behind them. It means there's demons behind them, which is exactly what I think. Paul does not say, oh, they sacrifice to idols, that they're nothing. There's no reality there. So what does it matter? No, he says what they're doing, even if that the idols are nothing. The idols are worthless. The things that they're sacrificing to are the things that stand behind the idols, which are demons, which is exactly how I would understand it. These beings that the Old Testament calls gods are demonic gods. They're high-ranking, powerful, spiritual beings that are opposed to God. They're demonic Right? But Paul, what he clearly does not say in either passage is that there's no reality there. That there's nothing behind the idols. That these sacrifices, who cares? You know what, go ahead and eat stuff sacrificed to idols. It doesn't matter at all because, you know, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no content. There's no substance. No, he says don't partake in these parts where you're sacrificing to demons. Because you can't be part of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You can't be part of drinking the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Don't partake in demonic reality. So he says the exact opposite. Actually, that, that there is something that stands behind the idols. And what it is is demonic gods. So don't sacrifice to them. Right? Don't, don't, 
Don't become a part of sacrificing to them. Another passage, I'll just tell you the way I understand this. We've come here so many times um, over this, this series, but Romans 1, I think, is really good. We'll go to the end of Romans 1, verse 22. Romans 1, 22. Professing to be wise, this is about humanity, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's idle talk, right? They exchanged the glory of God for an idol, an image. What's it go on to say? And then they exchanged the truth of God, this is verse 25, for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I think this is speaking about idols and gods. They exchanged the glory for an idol, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, which is constituting worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. What is the creature here? I think the creature is demonic gods, other gods. They're creatures, right? They're creatures that the creator created. So they still have that, they can still have that moniker of creature. I don't think this is talking about worshiping birds and spirits, or excuse me, I don't think it's talking about worshiping birds and snakes and other, you know, physical realities, though it could be. I'm not saying that that's uh, something uh, unreasonable to assume. I'm just saying, I actually think what Paul is saying here is that they exchanged the glory of God for an idol and they exchanged worshiping the true God the creator, to worship other gods. Worship and serve the creature. And I think that's truly who people worship and serve. They don't serve necess- they don't worship and serve necessarily other humans or animals. What they worship and serve is other gods, demonic gods, rather than the creator. So that they traded was the glory of God for idols, and they exchanged the truth of God, his creatorness, for a lie, which is worshiping and serving other gods. So that's how I'd understand Romans 1. Okay? So there's your first piece. Yeah, idols are just these material representations of immaterial beings. And on the whole, they, they're just worthless wood. They're nothing. But there are demonic realities that stand behind them, according to the Old Testament. There are demonic realities that stand, demonic entities that stand behind these idols and these material representations that we have to look at what the Bible has to say about them as well. So that's what we'll talk about next week. And we'll look at what the Bible has to say, what the Old Testament has to say about these beings that they uh, use the term gods for. Okay? All right. We'll see you next week.